0: Welcome to the
1: Duke Basketball Corner Podcast. I am your host, Adam Comerow, and I have Andrew Clark hanging out with me tonight. We're recording on Sunday, February 16th, a day after uh, Duke stomped Notre Dame like the Brothers Johnson. So that was actually the fifth ACC game this season that Duke has beaten an ACC opponent by 30-plus, which sets a Duke record. It's great, and at the same time, it also shows kind of the state of the ACC. But at the same time, it's great. So we'll talk a bit about uh, the Notre Dame game, and then after that, we'll go over some some basically some stats to just give a good overview of Duke. Because I was just telling Andrew uh, before we started that I try not to go too deep into stats, too deep in terms of advanced analytics, and too deep just in terms of giving too many. Because I know how that can sound to some. It kind of sounds like Charlie Brown's parents. So I try to only give them when necessary and give a good, good context, good explanation of why I'm giving them and why they matter. But I think uh, once in a while it's good just to kind of give a broad overview of everything. And I'll make sure to explain um, exactly what it shows. And it won't go too advanced into anything, but just go around the Duke team and just to say, like, they do this well, or at least give good context to where they are ranked in the country. That's basically what I'm just going to do, say where they're ranked for very specific things. All right, let's start. Uh, Duke, they walloped, as I said. They beat uh, Notre Dame 94-60. to 60. So that makes the record 22-3. and three, And now they are officially a half game in first place. So I'm not even sure when I can remember. The last time is they were in first place this late in the year, I mean, 2010 is the last time they uh, won any share of the ACC. They were tied with Maryland that season. Let me hear, see. I'm, click, I'm clicking back. When did they actually? 2006, JJ's senior year. That's actually the last time they won sole uh, first place in the ACC. So yeah, it's been a while. In 2010, the last time they shared it. So it's nice to have Duke in the race right now. And I still think it's a little bit too early to even consider the seating and all that kind of stuff. But it is just kind of interesting to think about how many ACC teams are even going to get in. Andrew, have you been paying any attention to that type of stuff? And uh, right now, what is the latest that you've heard or that you feel, how many teams you think might have a possibility of getting in from the ACC to the tournament?
0: The The last I've heard is four. Um, I'm not sure if that still holds, but I th- that's the last I heard.
1: Yeah, I mean, you have teams like, uh, I mean, I mean, just because there's so many teams that are having down years, you never know. Like r- right now, if if uh, Syracuse, if they go to Louisville and they beat Louisville, after that they have Georgia Tech, Pittsburgh, North Carolina, Boston College, and Miami. Those are all teams that, like, you would think Or, I mean, who knows what's going to happen this season. But you would think, like, if they can beat Louisville, then the next five games, they are very winnable for a team like Syracuse. But at the same time, who knows? But, I mean, so that could get them in. And then NC State, I mean, they obviously have uh, two chances against a team that uh, I cover. So, hey, there's chances for them. And uh, they have the talent and many including me even though I said they'll somehow find a way to be on the bubble um at the beginning of the year I said like I mean that was almost a joke because I really thought they were they they were almost like guaranteed to be in the tournament but just because they're NC State they always find a way to get on that bubble
0: I think a lot of it's gonna come down to the ACC tournament um they're just like you've said there aren't as many quality wins to be had in the ACC so I think I think they're I mean there's gonna be a couple teams on the bubble in the ACC tournament just hoping to maybe get that one big win that puts them over the edge
1: yeah I mean just going over real quick I mean this isn't about seeding or anything it's just something interesting to look over Duke's schedule and to just see how they really haven't they haven't even had many chances against top teams I mean right now like Ken Palm I'm looking at like top 50 teams they play it. I mean, Kansas. It, that was they're ranked number one in Palm, But I've said many times since that. I said the same thing after Kentucky. The first game of the of the season, the Champions Classic. I consider it meaningless, in terms of stats, in terms of the tournament. Yeah, it's going to factor in. I'm just talking about how I view the games and what I interpret from them, non-stat wise. And I basically interpreted nothing from Kansas. The same way I interpreted nothing from uh, Kentucky. And if you haven't heard me say it before. I will repeat. I think the Champions Classic should be the first Tuesday after the Super Bowl. I think that would be the perfect time for it. But at the same time, it won't happen because money. So uh, yeah, the, the Kansas number one, Georgetown's actually in the top fifty, number forty-seven. I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm not sure they're a team that I would guarantee in the tournament. Then you have Michigan State at Michigan State. If, they, if they're in the right now, I mean, then they're, they're the big the Big Ten. That's a tough it's a tough league. So there's plenty of opportunities for them to rise up, but they just lost to Maryland. So, uh, then Louisville lost at home. Louisville's had some struggles, but that's that's still obviously uh, at least a very credible game in terms of strength of schedule. And then Florida State at uh, 22 in Kempon. I mean, that's it. Those are literally the only teams Duke has played in the top 50. Was that Florida State 1, Louisville 2? Those are the only two at home. Um, Then you have uh, Kansas and uh, Georgetown neutral. And you have Michigan State on the road, like it's it's just nuts in a season like this that you would have that few top fifty games. And Georgetown is right on the brink, so it's almost like really four. So it's it's a it's an interesting season. <laughs> um. So uh, in in terms of Duke Notre Dame, the biggest thing to take away from Duke Notre Dame, Mike Buckmeyer, Mike Buckmeyer with a tasty <laughs> dish, then just straight up embarrasses defender. It reminded me back of like 2018 Mike Buckmeyer, who was the best player on the team in the Alpha MB over, over, Mar, over uh, Marvin Bagley and Marquise Bolden. Hey, If you don't believe me, look up his uh, per 40-minute averages. Buckmeier, oh, man, that, was, that brought back some great memories. It's about time. He's been straight trash this season, and he is my player of the game. Props to Buckmeyer. Hashtag get Buck in here. Um, the stat of the game. Javon Delaurier, one for two from three. Both of them, not desperation shots. I remember before the season started, there were, of course, because reporters just report anything um, that comes out of the Duke camp, and uh, no matter if it makes sense or not. And it was like, Javin Deloria, he's he's extended his range. He's going to be a three-point shooter. And I'm just like, that's not gonna happen. I mean, I remember saying on the pod, like, that's ridiculous. It's the same thing as like when Marquise Bolden. It was reported that he had extended his range and he was gonna start uh, launching yes. shots. And then, and then I think uh, Javon, he shot like a, a three in the first exhibition game, and it and it came like five feet short. And I'm like, there you go, that that'll end that. And it has. And then he's just like launching him against Notre Dame, and it just made me think, you know what? That's the type of game this is. That's exactly the type of game this is. So uh, anybody who wants to interpret Duke Notre Dame as like, oh, we can take away so much from it, there are aspects to take away. And we'll get into that. But at the same time, if Javin's taking two threes that both are are not desperation shots and Mike Buckmeyer's just embarrassing defenders, I think we uh, can uh, have a good idea of what kind of game it is. All right, so uh, that is the most points allowed by Notre Dame this season. And 40 points more than Notre Dame allowed in their last game against Virginia. It's the, first, it's the fourth time Duke has scored 50-plus in a half. The second half they did it. Um, the others were Miami, Notre Dame. Uh, I'm sorry, Miami, Cuse, and Central Arkansas. Uh, let's see. That's, as I mentioned, Duke's fifth ACC win this season by 30-plus, which set a new school record, breaking a four-way tie uh, with 1998, 1999, and 2001. Well, at the, at the same time, Duke was great in all three of those seasons. Those were also seasons when the ACC wasn't quite, uh, I'll say, up to par. That's um, uh, Kay's sixth, sixth straight win over Mike Bray. Puts him at 9-5 and five over Bray. So, I mean, it was almost like when they first started playing each other that uh, Bray had Kay's number, and now six straight, 9-5. The only others he's played right now are uh, Johnny Dawkins 0-2, Tommy Amaker 0-2, uh, Quinn Snyder, 0-2, and Jeff Capel, 0-2, and uh, I should say 2-0 because uh, otherwise that sounds uh, the reverse of what it means. K is 2-0 and against all of those coaches. I'll, I'll go through a couple more things before I'll go through the two, um, I guess, overwhelming narratives. No travel. Something that I found very interesting that I saw a couple weeks ago, but I forgot to mention it, out of Duke's last regular, out of Duke's last nine regular season games, how many times do you think they travel out of the state of North Carolina?
0: Um,
1: don't overthink it. Just guess a number.
0: One, two. I don't know.
1: You're really good when you just like guess randomly. Um, yeah, it's <laughs> one. Um, when they when they head to Virginia, that's literally the only time they uh, are out of the state of North Carolina, and it basically started when they came back from. um from uh, Boston College. So you got got uh, North Carolina at North Carolina, home against Florida State, home against Notre Dame, at NC State, uh, home against Virginia Tech, at Wake Forest, at Virginia, home against NC State, home against North Carolina. Then, I believe, the ACC tournament. It is in Greensboro this season. And then the first two rounds, they could be playing in North Carolina in the NCAA tournament. So that's yeah. actually pretty wild how they leave the state only really – once in, in quite a number of games so if i mean i don't want to hear anything about travel right or, any, or anything like that because there's i mean and a lot of those are in the triangle so even less travel right there so i mean that that's just a really it's it's a nice thing to have um at least yeah, on for the sure. schedule. Um, another thing it, it was interesting because in the way that coach k he really he really um expressed how happy he was with uh, the crazies, he said, uh, reminded me of the old of the old school crazies, how loud they were, and it got me interested in terms of when, like, cause when Duke plays in terms of on the Saturday, there's always um, whenever Duke is lost on a Saturday or not whenever, but maybe the ones that stick out in my head. It always feels like they're odd times, like a, like a noon time. I remember, like for some reason, like a bunch of St. John's games are at like noon and or like two o'clock or something. So so I was wondering how many Saturday games Dukes played or will play this season where it's anywhere but six o'clock or after. And uh, okay, I'll, I'll I'll let you guess. Let's see how good you are. How many How many do you think for this season? Uh, how many are Saturdays before six o'clock?
0: Too.
1: You you really have a talent for this. Um, <laughs> yeah, December twenty eighth, Brown. That was I don't think I've ever even like they had that at eleven thirty. I remember thinking that was really weird when it happened, like not twelve or anything. Uh, it was actually at eleven thirty. I quite, never quite figured out why that happened, but uh, yeah, every single other game has been uh, six o'clock or later, except for Notre Dame. And I don't, I don't know if it had any effect, but it, it's just like, I mean, that's literally the last kind of, I guess you could say midday. Um, yeah, so I don't know if that kind of, everyone was a little more juiced. I mean, as, I, think,
0: I think... Go ahead. I was just going to say, I think you have to also take into consideration Zion's in the building. I mean, that obviously brought a lot of energy to the arena.
1: Yeah, I'll talk about that. Yeah, I, I guess that, that, that is a good transition to get into uh, two of the narratives. First, I will say uh, before Zion... Is Cassius, Cassius Stanley. It was a. Uh, there was a person who, their name shouldn't be mentioned because I mean they, they tweeted something. It is a person with. I don't base anything on the number of followers a person has in terms of who, whatever, uh, who I've interacted with or not interacted with in the past, or who I give more credibility to. Like that doesn't matter the number of followers. But if you are a professional organization or a platform that reports official things, like to just take somebody's Twitter account, I don't know. I think it's a pretty risky maneuver to do that. So there was someone who uh, tweeted about how Cassius Stanley was poked in the eye in the warmups before the Notre Dame game and was heading to the locker room and looked to be in a great deal of discomfort. And that that was reported. It was but the thing is it was also reported by like credible like I know um, Mark Watson who covers Duke. He reported that. Use that. Don't use a random persons because I mean I think the person who tweeted it ended up deleting it, probably be, I don't know if Duke the official Duke people told her to or not. But either way, have a little sort of credibility as an organization in terms of what you report. But but bottom line, catch a Stanley. Uh, he got poked in the eye by a manager in warm-ups. And I cannot say how badly I feel. Ho- for, number one, hopefully Cash is okay. I don't know. I mean, I haven't heard anything bad. and might I mean, he looked okay sitting on the bench, but who knows? Um, I mean, you never know what's going on with that eye. But I can't even imagine how bad the manager feels. Also, I can't um, understand how it happened with someone rebounding a ball for a player warming up. How they could poke him in the eye, but at the same time, stuff happens, and hopefully he's okay. But that was it was a weird, weird, unfortunate incident, and that's the first uh, that's the first time Stanley has not started a game. Obviously, he didn't play at all. Um, well, uh, yeah, I mean, if he didn't play, he didn't start, so that counts as uh, doesn't mean he play he played and didn't start, so it's just a DNP. And uh, I think it ended up Duke's twelfth starting lineup, I believe, something like that. So hopefully Cassius is okay and hopefully that manager doesn't take it too hard and hopefully that manager doesn't check Twitter to see anything about what people say because that can't be easy. Alright, a little post-recording edit, which is uh, the first of what will be probably the most I've made in any podcast in, this might be ever. There's like four in this episode. I mostly don't add anything after, rarely more than one. But there are a couple that I felt the need to add for this episode. And I forgot to mention, I mean, I was railing about it kind of to Andrew before we started recording. When people who cover Duke, when they see something happen, and then ESPN reports something completely different, it's just amusing in terms of the propaganda I kind of mock at times. In terms of Duke just basically... They obviously told ESPN to say that Cassius had injured his eye in practice earlier in the week, and that's what ESPN reported, even though multiple people saw the incident happen with uh, the manager the manager incidentally uh, poking him in the eye. ESPN repeated that over and over and over in terms of Cassius injured his his eye earlier in the week. I mean, in these days, I'm not going to go on a rant or anything, but with the whole like fake news stuff, like weirdos saying that everything is fake news. Don't actually report fake news when there are multiple witnesses, credible witnesses, who saw it happen when Cassius' dad is going back to the locker room after it happened to make sure he's okay. Don't report that it happened earlier in the week just because Duke wants you to spread some propaganda and not, you know what? I don't even want to say it was Duke. I don't, I don't want to put that on Duke. I don't know who it was from, but, like, that was just weird. I mean, I assume it has to be from Duke because where else would it be from that ESPN would get their information? But either way, that was very odd to me. All right, so Zion, when, when you, how much have you seen in terms of whether it be articles or people talking, like, in terms of how he affected the game? In terms of like recaps or anything like that?
0: Uh, The only thing I heard was just during the game. They threw that out there, but I haven't seen any articles about it.
1: Okay, so like the articles I've seen, that's the lead. The lead is that basically Zion came and at that exact time, Duke used the magical Zion energy to go on a huge run and it was just over. Like when Zion came, it it was over. It was immediate in the blink of an eye. And this isn't something like where I just saw like one article. Like it's pretty much uh, everything. Like it's everyone's narrative and it's wrong. Like it's really weird yeah. to me why, why that always seems to happen. It's just literally an excuse to form the laziest narrative you can possibly do to avoid actually figuring out what happened in a basketball game. Because if you actually look at uh, – what happened? Duke was up 10 at halftime. 42-32. And Zion arrived at a timeout at 54-37. So Duke was already going on a run. They were up by 17. So they, in less than four minutes, they had increased their lead from 10 to 17. And he comes. He sits down. So uh, what happens? Do they immediately just annihilate Notre Dame? No. Over the next two and a half minutes... Notre Dame trimmed the lead by one, so there's not some magical thing where all of a sudden, like Duke used the Zion energy and just blew New- Notre Dame off the court. When did it exactly happen? 13:53. That's when it happened. Why did it happen? Because they subbed. Because uh, Alex O'Connell and Joey Baker and Vernon Carey were subbed in for Javin, Jordan and Wendell, and then Duke just blew them off the court. With uh, O'Connell hit a couple threes, Baker hit a couple threes and it was on from there but i think it's just a little too much i love zion i love everything he did for duke i love what he represents for duke uh, he he's, he's a great dude but like how about not give him credit and take away credit from like what what the current duke players actually did if i had to guess i don't know but if i had to guess i would say zion wouldn't want that i don't think he would want anyone writing articles about how he is the reason that Duke won or he had this crazy effect on Duke because they were already pulling away. It Nothing crazy happened when he arrived. And then it took a couple minutes. And then they, they blew him out because of actual players who made the difference. Because of guys like O'Connell and Baker, those guys are the ones who made the difference. They made the plays. And then after the game, they're asked about Zion. And, of course, they're going to kind of tow the company line about how, oh, yeah, man, we were inspired by Zion and blah, 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 and all that stuff. This is not an anti-Zion thing. How about just give credit to the Duke guys who won the game for the current Duke team? That's my point. Would you Would you agree with that, or do you think uh, I'm underrating the Zion effect?
0: No, I, I completely agree. I mean, I do think it might have made the crowd get up on their feet and get a little louder, but it wasn't like Zion was out there just like fist-pumping, getting the crowd all hyped up, and then, yeah, like you said, then Duke goes on a magical run. Um, yeah, it was players making the plays— um I mean, yeah, like you said, three players get subbed in and then that's when the run happens. It doesn't directly correspond to Zion. Um but obviously news outlets and stuff. I mean you put Zion in the headline of an article, you instantly get I don't know, uh quite a large number more clicks, I would guess. So
1: if anything, I think Zion was uh inspired by Buckmeyer. I mean Buckmeyer is the one who was Zion's life coach last year. And when Buckmeyer uh, hit the layup. I mean, you could just see Zion. He was just so proud.
0: That of was the, uh, of the most
1: of his sensei.
0: Yeah, that was some of the most wholesome content I've ever seen. Just the, I saw a video and then just just Zion smiling in the background as Buck Meyer makes a nice layup. It's, yeah, very wholesome.
1: They should have interviewed Buck Meyer. Buck Meyer should have made Zion sit next to him. How about that?
0: That would have been ideal yeah, for
1: last year. All right, so uh, a little more back. like I would say the keys to the game. It's, it's pretty odd. Notre Dame lacks size. Like, they completely lack size. And Vern Carey, there's not many guys as big as him. So when Juwan Durham picked up his second foul, basically forcing Mooney to guard Vern and for Rex Fluger to guard Matthew Hurt, that was it. I mean, that's when Vern immediately went on the run. I was actually, because Juwan Durham, he doesn't play a ton of minutes, but he actually is a pretty good defender. And he's one of the guys that I'm always looking to see if Vern can really play well against. Um, because he has the size to give Vern some issues, and I, sh- I, I should give credit to Vern for getting him in foul trouble. Because it's not like those fouls just happened. Vern got the two fouls, but once he was out, then Vern just went crazy. Like he went on his own personal run, and Matthew hurt. I mean, there's there's literally nothing Rex Pluger can do. All of a sudden, Matthew hurt just looked like a stud doing whatever he wanted. I'm like, this is interesting.
0: So. Can I ask you? Mm-hmm. Just a quick question. Do you think it was interesting or did you find it weird at all that Notre Dame didn't seem to try and double Vernon Carey when he was just going off on bigs that clearly couldn't guard him?
1: I think they couldn't quite decide. I actually have that written down. It looks like they couldn't quite decide what they wanted to do. I mean sometimes it looked like they were about to double and then they just didn't. Sometimes it looked like they that was the plan at all. I mean, the, as I'll talk about. I mean, they were they were even in a one three one zone for a second. So I don't know, I don't quite know what they were doing, but at the same time, once Duke started hitting threes in the second half, I think that changed everything up. But in terms of the first half, yeah. So when Durham picked up his his second foul, that changed everything. And then the second half, it was just about building on that momentum because when you think about the type of team Notre Dame is, Duke just basically forced them to play Duke's game, and that's what Duke can do with this year's versatile lineup. I mean, when you start looking at uh, Notre Dame pregame, here's what I started to see. Notre Dame, I'm looking at them versus top 100 teams, 4-12. and 12. They are 0-4 when making seven three-pointers or fewer, 4-4 and 4 when making more than seven three-pointers. So, what do you think Duke is going to do? They're going to try to force them off of the three-point line. Obviously, that's going that sounds simpler than it is, but at the same time, that's the way to take away their offensive strength. They're number one nationally lowest offensive turnover uh, percentage, they're number one nationally in offensive turnovers per game, number one nationally in assist to turnover ratio. Uh, Number five nationally in assist rate, number 28 in offensive three point rate, number 13 nationally in three point distribution, which is the uh, percent of their total points, which are three pointers. They are number 326 nationally in offensive free throw rate, number uh, 311 nationally in free throw distribution, and number 321 nationally in two point distribution. So, what all this is, all these numbers, it just means they score the mass majority of their points. They're not going to beat you individually. They're going to work the offense as a team, so there's, you don't have to worry about ISO. You have to worry about what is going to be generated. There's three ways to score. There is from the three-point line, there's two-point shots, and there's free throws. And they pretty much score the mass, mass, mass majority of them from the three-point line. So that was that seemed like it was Duke's goal. Um, number one nationally and lowest turnover percentage and uh, at 14%. Result, 18.4 turnover percentage. I don't think Duke turned him over a ton, but enough to make a difference. I think Dick Vitale, because he's Dick Vitale, acted like Duke was turning him over every possession because Dick Vitale has trouble kind of following along with with, uh, what's going on because of his excitement. I will always say the number one ambassador for college basketball, love him. But calling a game, it can be frustrating to uh, listen to him uh, because he's talking pretty much about everything but the game. Uh, So uh, an assist rate, that basically stayed the same. But here you go. In terms of uh, number 28 nationally an offensive three-point rate, so 45.3% of their shots, their field goal attempts, are from three. Against Duke, though, it was 33.3%. And Notre Dame's last two shots in garbage time were both threes. So that also skewed it. So they prevented Notre Dame from really doing exactly what they wanted to do. In terms of uh, number one nationally in offensive three-point distribution, of the total points against Duke, 25%. And so, I mean, it kind of goes there where it's just a matter of with these teams, I just look before the game the same way I talked about against Syracuse. And it's like you try to force a team to play your style. Again, that's not easy, just saying that. But with Duke's versatility, they can do that even when they're unfortunately missing a guy like Cassius Stanley. So I think that's what uh, Duke did. And, and you also think about how Notre Dame, how their defense works. Let's let's go down. And uh, they don't foul. They don't let you get to the line. And to be honest against Duke, both those, both those things were true. The Notre Dame averaged 12.4 fouls per game. Duke, they only committed 11 fouls against Duke. Lowest free throw distribution, percent of total points, 12.5%. Duke only made seven free throws, just 7.5%. Uh, so number forty-one nationally, the lowest defensive two-point field goal percentage at forty-five percent. Duke shot fifty-point-nine. But then it's like Duke, uh, Nat- they, Notre Dame number two thirty nationally and highest defensive offensive rebound percentage, twenty-nine point one. Okay, from what you remember, did did Duke get a lot of offensive rebounds, lost of second chance opportunities?
0: No, I don't remember that being the case.
1: No, not not at all. Duke only grabbed 20.7% uh, of their missed shots, 6 of 30. But you know what? They didn't miss much. So I think that's what it really comes down to. They just started making everything. And uh, against Notre Dame, it just warmed down. I mean, this, this is kind of – you can go through and look at everything in terms of force the team to play your style and force them to go against what they want to do. But they don't have depth. So when they lost Durham, that was pretty much it. And when you look at the first half and even overall during the game, how they were uh, scoring, like in the first half, uh, John Mooney and Juwan Durham scored 27 of the 32 points and shot 12 of 16, while everyone else shot 2 of 13. For the game, 40 of 60 points, shot 18 of 29, and all others shot 5 of 34. So yeah, I mean, it's two guys scoring all of their points. That's not no, the way Notre Dame does things. And where are most of those points being scored? Are they being scored outside or are they being scored inside?
0: Definitely inside.
1: Absolutely. So what Duke's doing, they're just blitzing everything. Notre Dame's running a lot of pick and roll, and they're just blitzing the ball handler so there's just no opportunities and and just making sure that for a pop, they are really switching off to that. There were some uh, troublesome areas in terms of the roller. Duke actually gave up some really easy opportunities to the roller, which most, most times happened to be Durham, who scored his career high. Not that many minutes. I think he only played 23 minutes. His first career game over uh, 20 points, good for him. But at the same time, there were some communication issues down low, which really doesn't happen much for Duke. And it's tough to know exactly who it was on. I mean, it happened uh, with uh, with Vern at times, Um when he was committing to the ball handler on the pick-and-roll, it happened with Javin. But either way, the rotation was very late or didn't occur at all. So that's something to notice. Against a team like Notre Dame, you can get away with it. But that's something to notice for later. But at the same time, Duke has, Duke has been pretty exceptional against the pick-and-roll, no matter what type of pick-and-roll it's been. So that, that, I wouldn't worry too much, but it is just something that is, uh, that's worth noticing. Um, yeah, I- one thing
0: One thing I'd say is just uh, I think they did do a good job just raising up our defense on the weak side so there wasn't an obvious help, man. And then I think that kind of hurt Duke. But, yeah, like you said, the, the pick and roll, finding that slip, man, or just the roll, man, um, that was maybe about the only thing Notre Dame did really well offensively.
1: Yeah, I mean, at least in the first half, and it really was only the first half because I think they only scored like six points from it. It just looked bad each time, so – Kind of felt like more occasionally, but I mean, when, when you when you got a guy like uh, T.J. Gibbs or Temple Gibbs, whatever he goes by, I mean, that's a dude averaging thirteen point eight. You know, do you know how many points he scored? Zero. Zero points. They totally took him out. I mean, that's it's not easy to do. I mean, they did that same thing to Brandon Childress, and they've held a lot of guys below uh, who are in the top fifteen in the ACC and scoring below their averages and. They have an ability to take away, so even if uh, Mooney's going to get um, a bunch of points and Durham's going to get a bunch of points and, hey, they, I mean, most of their points were in the first half, still, you're not, it's not the way Notre Dame wants to operate. So, I mean, it was almost just a matter of time before Duke went on a run. All right, so some other aspects I took from the game Um Did I mention I I think I might have started mentioning it, but I didn't finish that. After Duke's sloppiest game all season, where they turned the ball over 21 times against FSU, they turned it over just nine times, tied for a season low. The 11.9 turnover percentage was the third lowest of the season. So that that was good, because Florida State, that was a slop fest. And it's not just turnovers. It's the way a lot of the turnovers occur. I mean, even taking away Javin's kind of – De- uh, desperation Chuck at the end of the first half. I'm not even counting that. So that would be 20 um, turnovers, 10 each half. Trey had one of the worst inbounding games I've ever seen in my life. Like, it was nuts to just watch him. I mean, he, almost, he like dropped the ball inbounds a couple of times. He had four turnovers just inbounding. It was very, very weird. I think that some of that did have to do with just immediately coming off of the UNC game where there's just a high intensity. But at the same time, in the NCAA tournament, you're going to play a game and then uh, from the first round to the second round and potentially from the uh, Sweet 16 to the lead Eight. And if you get to the Final Four to the uh, championship, I mean, you can't you can't have those mental lapses. So Florida State was ugly. I talked about that a little bit on the last pod, but I kind of left it mostly as the uh, UNC deep dive. I thought it kind of fit better that way. But Florida State, that was pretty ugly in terms of the way – The turnovers occurred, especially with the way Florida State plays defense and the way they really collapse on you driving into the center. I mean, it's like Duke just kept trying over and over and over. And what's the definition of crazy? It's doing something over and over and over again, expecting a different result. That seemed to be what Duke was doing, and yet they kept turning it over. So who who, who knew? Um, All right, so Duke, I mean, that was their lowest uh, offensive free throw rate of the season, but. didn't quite matter because they made a bunch of threes. I always talk about them being judicious with judicious with the threes. Most of the time when I've said it, it's because they've shot a ton in the first half. And then they keep on shooting in the second half. And that's when things go wrong. So against Notre Dame, I think the big thing was they got hot in the second half. And yeah, if you get hot in the second half, yeah, roll with it. I mean, I'm I'm, I'm good with that. If you're like 7 of 14 in the second half and especially during that run. I mean, that put the game away, so there are probably a couple more that happen in garbage time. But, yeah, I, I'm I'm plenty okay with that. Plus, a lot of it also depends on who's shooting. And, uh, yeah, so if you have the uh, the guys like Hurt, if you have uh, O'Connell, if you have Baker all shooting, and if they're quality shots, by all means, keep it up. Andrew, do you remember the, the kind of when I went down uh, about two podcasts ago, two episodes ago, about how when Duke they when their bench scores below 20 that equates almost every single game with their uh, lowest offensive uh, efficiency for of the season.
0: Yeah, I remember that.
1: Okay, so yeah, I mean that's something to notice when uh two out of the last three games their bench has gotten a big donut in the first half. And then um one like against North Carolina they won, but it took a freaking miracle. And that's still one of their worst offensive efficiency games of the season. It wasn't a bad one. But it's one of their, it's one of their worst. So that equates. They only had 13 total against uh, North Carolina. Against Notre Dame, after zero in the first half. If you're going to say around a certain number, how many, how many bench points do you think they ended up with?
0: I mean, I have the box score sitting in front of me, so I was kind of looking at it, but it's okay, like yeah. around 30.
1: Yeah, so it says 31. Just, you know, I mean, some of it, obviously, like my like my boy Buckmeyer, um, that was garbage time. But at the same time, I mean, it just shows how it really helps to inject a dose of energy into into the lineup. And the, it's always a good thing when K starts subbing in new players. I, obviously, if things are going perfectly, I'm not going to say change it every time. But I love when he makes changes in the second half. Because it, it always seems like he's okay in the first half. He's kind of feeling things out. But then he, it gets a little stagnant in the second half. And something that has uh, tended to almost help, but I'm not saying I would like it to continue, is when somebody goes down, it almost forces K, uh, Krzyzewski, to really go out of his comfort zone and just keep trying different things. Like never get comfortable with the lineup, at least for that game. And that's what happened when he didn't have Cassius. All of a sudden, it's just new lineups kept happening more and more. So it's it's fun to see that. And again, I'm not saying that I want Caches out. I'm not saying Duke is better with Caches. They're not. Or without Caches, they're not. Because if you think about one way Notre Dame was scoring a lot in the first half, also is the fact that Notre Dame was getting second chances. Notre Dame doesn't even score much on second chances. And that's something where, especially with Hurt in there, you got you to gotta remember how good a rebounder is. Cassius Stanley is, especially as a shooting guard or even small forward when he plays there. He is—he's a beast. He is a bull, and not having him that affects things. Even for something like uh, defensive rebounding, which may go overlooked by some. Alex O'Connell, the king of garbage time, and it's—it's uh, it's, it's just a kind of fun thing to say about O'Connell. But at the same time, he really—he—he loves—he loves the garbage time. He—he he is the king of garbage time. I mean, he is the controller of that uh, kind of, I don't want to say B team, because everyone has a vital role on the team, but at the same time, I mean, he he really took charge at the end, and I'm just ho- hoping that a lot of that can kind of continue on to regulation. You know what? He, he made some great, huge plays against uh, North Carolina and continued on versus Florida State. He was pretty good, so... Maybe it's just continuing on from those games and hopefully he can move on from there because he had been struggling before even while having some uh, impressive performances in garbage time. But Alex O'Connell has the ability to be kind of his own little stat skewer where people can look at his stats and not realize how often they occur in garbage time. So hopefully this can – what he did against Notre Dame will continue on to uh, following games. I want to talk a little bit more about Jordan Goldwire. Um, Jordan Goldwire, first of all, like it's not as bad as Frank Mason. Frank Mason actually from Kansas, he committed to uh, Towson and it turned, it was some like weird school thing where he needed to take another class. So he went to community college and then transferred to Kansas and the rest is kind of history. Uh, But he was actually supposed to go to Towson. Jordan Goldwire was offered by Towson and, and Towson is where I graduated from and I'm just bitter. Jordan Goldwire, man, that dude would be a hell of a mid-major uh, starting point guard. Like, not just a good one, a, re- a great one. And I mean, this is a dude who competed against Colin Sexton in high school, and he just keeps getting better. I think there was a point made during the uh, telecast where he talked about how he, kinda, he never developed the confidence last year because any time he'd make a mistake, whether it be kind of shooting or something else – um, when he wasn't supposed to, he would get pulled. And that's something which frustrates me at times about K. and many have been involved in that. I think the, some of the worst have been, like, actually starting point guards and how it's messed with this, with their confidence, guys like Derek Thornton and Trevon Duval But at the same time, uh, Goldwire, he's really – I mean, his improvement, I started to talk about it a little bit on the last pod, he is just – he super reliable I think that's the thing reliable everyone knows what he can do on defense but on offense he's just always making the right decision he's shooting with confidence and he's even taking dudes off the drive that's just something I couldn't have imagined before and I mean there was one Duke reporter who who talked about how well Jordan Goldwire he's not a knockdown shooter I don't understand why guys leave him open I mean first of all just Vern's going to be doubled and so somebody's going to get the ball And when Goldwire gets the chance, he's knocking them down now, especially when you get any shooter, when they get into a rhythm, it's a whole new ballgame. So when he's attempting, when he's attempted more than two shots from deep in the ACC, there has been one, two, three, four, five, six. Six games. Virginia Tech, two for five. Miami, one for two. Wake, one for two. Clemson, two for three. Pitt, three for seven. Florida State, three for three. I mean, I don't know what it takes to be considered a reliable shooter, but at least when he's gotten the opportunities, he's knocking them down. So I'm not sure if people are just waiting for his percentages to regress, but he keeps doing it. I mean, if you're only shooting one a game, then it's tough. It's kind of like the Jack White syndrome of last year, where it's almost like a a baseball when you go up, you're a pinch hitter, and you only get like one at bat once in a while. It's almost impossible to develop a rhythm and you're just going up thinking about it. So when you actually get to shoot more than once, and he's, he's involved in the offense, I think now you can see the difference, and it just looks so smooth. And I, I talked about how much Trey must have worked on his shot in the offseason. Props to Goldwire, man. He's, just, he's doing his thing, and uh, just really, really playing well right now.
0: Yeah, I mean, you said how good of a mid-major starting point guard he could be. I mean, he, he could very well be fighting for a starting a starting point guard spot next year for Duke. I mean, the kid's been great like you said his three point percentage has gotten so much better. I think it's up to like 40% now. Um the last three or the last six games he's shooting 7 for 12 from three. Uh yeah, he's just he's just been super reliable obviously an absolute pest on defense and what he's bringing offensively is is more than enough.
1: I mean, when you look at his overall stats, he started off the season something like one for like 10 or something from three. So I think it's uh, it's worth it more to look at the more recent, especially in the ACC, and especially, like I said, when he shoots more than once. Because when somebody only gets one opportunity, it's it's tough to develop that rhythm, and then it's just kind of hit or miss. So when he gets more opportunities, I mean, he he's turned into one of the most reliable three-pointers on the team especially when he gets more than one opportunity. So, yeah, absolutely. Props to him. Uh, something I noticed is Trey, he's hit a couple pull-up three-pointers in recent games, and that's something where he started off the season, it looked great, and then he just stopped doing it or he stopped hitting it. He did, he did keep doing it, but he stopped hitting it. So now hopefully this will get him into a little more of a rhythm that way because that adds another element. It's just if it's if he gets cold too much, then it becomes almost – like I talked about earlier, in the, year, the trouble with their transition offense. Uh, you don't want him to keep doing it over and over if, uh, if he uh, keeps breaking. But when he can hit, I mean, that's, that's, it's almost like a cash's dunk, where it just adds this kind of, you can feel like the lightning strike the game. It adds this bolt of energy, and I, I love when he hits that pull-up three in transition. Verne hit a three. I wouldn't, I wouldn't uh, overthink that one, but it's great to see him hit that step back. He he scored 16 in the first half, so that adds another uh, one to my list. I think it's like 13 guys who have scored over 15, 15 or more in the first half, and only two of them have actually scored, ended up with over 26. So that was always interesting thing right there in terms of how their production usually dips when there's a lot of context involved and why, but it's just interesting. So he scored... Uh, he scored 16. I think he ended. What he end up like? 21 or something against Notre Dame.
0: Yeah, I was 21.
1: I mentioned how Cassius with the offensive, with the rebounding in the first half, the defensive rebounding, you could kind of feel Cassius' absence um, right there. But uh, yeah, I mean, overall, I don't see how you could really pick apart Notre Dame. And uh, yeah, moving forward, I mean. I'm not quite sure how they do the quadrant games and the net rating and all that stuff. But I think like at NC State net at Virginia, that'll be some big games. So those will be games to get a little more into. But, yes, yeah, for Notre Dame, just great win. Again, set the set the school record for most wins, most ACC wins over 30-plus in the season. There's still plenty more to go, which shows that Duke is a great team, but also shows that at the same time the ACC stinks. So, um, all right, moving on. To just, I think it's a good time, as I said at the start, to just go down and see where Duke ranks, at least in the positives. I mean, there really aren't too many negatives in terms of offense and defense, but I'll just go down some Ken Palm stuff and some synergy stuff in terms of plays, in terms of types of offense, types of defense, just to give an idea. Let's start out with Ken Palm. And this is the offense. This is all offense. Number seven, adjusted efficiency. Not surprising. They are, they've ne- as I said in the beginning of the year, they are really, really efficient. Even if they don't have as many guys who can just take you off the dribble, I think um, they have the ability to run really great offense, especially since they have the uh, the king in the middle, Vern Carey, who they could just dump it down to and work off him. He's getting better every single game with his passing. I mean, he, he had a great kick out to Hurt. He's going to have a bunch of assists, and they will come fast and furious if, uh, if guys can hit shots or use his pass as a sort of hockey assist to swing it around. He's, he keeps getting better on these assists. I love seeing that. So number seven, adjusted efficiency, just uh, how uh, efficient their offense is. It's that simple. Number 21, effective field goal percentage. That is kind of adjust for how threes are worth more than two. No, number 15 nationally in offensive rebound percentage. Helps a lot by, with uh, Vern. Number 25 in two point field goal percentage. Number 64 in three point percentage. That's good enough, especially when you have games like, uh, what they get? One for 15 a couple of games ago. Who was that against? Do you remember who that was against?
0: Uh, I don't remember. I'm trying to think. Uh, let me
1: see here. It was against Boston College. They went one for 15. Then uh, they went two for 16 against Brown. So two games like that, they're still ranked number 64, pretty good. Number 23, okay, now we're at Synergy. Number 23, overall offense. This is done by points per possession. Number 27, overall half court. Number 57, half court versus man. Number 20, half court versus zone. See, when people thought, oh, there could be some comparisons in half court to last year's team, Last year's team stunk against zone. I, I, I couldn't believe that teams didn't zone them more. They, there's just, they couldn't figure out what to do in zone. This year's team, very different because they have the ability to run more set offense. And they're actually better in zone than men. Uh, number three in post-ups. Not surprising. That is Vern. Number 33 overall catch and shoot. When they have an open shot and they're judicious with it, boom, they hit it. Number 18, half-court, three-point field goals. Especially, see that's when you can see it's a higher percentage or higher points per possession when they're in half court because of that earlier in the season when they were chucking threes in transition. So half court's better. But here's where the transition offense you can really see they are number 62 right now, and I mean they're averaging 1.086 points per possession. It's it's great. I mean it's not one of the top, but it's great. But the thing is, anyone who listens to this pod consistently. We remember the, there was a, there was like an in depth conversation I had with uh, Ray Holloman when we did kind of the ACC preview slash non conference in review on that deep dive and a big concern was the transition offense which hit its absolute low point after Brown it was awful Duke was around 300 in the rankings out of 353 teams and if you eliminated Central Arkansas which was a stat skewer game they were around the 20 worst teams in the country it was just awful and the main cause of that was running off of uh, missed field goals and chucking threes and some of that or a lot of it had to do with uh, Wendell Carter and Alex O'Connell Wendell Carter had a habit of missing shots at the rim um, when they were at the rim yeah I'm sorry Wendell Moore at the rim and Alex O'Connell would just miss a lot of in transition period from uh, from deep so they that basically stopped happening and Unfortunately, it did have a lot to do with O'Connell just didn't play um, a lot and Wendell Moore got hurt. So, yeah, it it had a lot to do with who was in there. But now, since the two of them are back, it's it's still on fire. And Duke, they have a 1.211 points per possession since Brown. And that would rank number five overall. The thing that makes it most impressive is all those games since Brown are against ACC teams. So this isn't like piling on stats. Like it's the reverse with most teams who kind of pile on big numbers versus overmatched teams. Duke actually did the reverse. I mean, again, I said the ACC is not exactly what it typically is um, in most years. But at the same time, it's still better than most of the non-conference teams they were playing. And most of the non-conference teams, many of the high majors play. So the fact that they're doing so well, it would rank number five overall in the country for what they're doing now against the ACC teams. I mean, they are – I mean, it's fantastic, especially because there are some games where in the half-court offense struggles, especially games when uh, Vern, he might get in foul trouble or games like uh, – where it's just – it's tough sledding, bottom line. There's no need to get into all that again. I've given all those reasons and all that context. But bottom line, it's nice to have another option because I always say – there is ways to get bonus points. There's very obvious ways um, besides just making shots. It's three-pointers at, at a point to the two-point. There's free throws where it's just nobody's guarding you. And then there's transition where you get momentum going into your shot. I mean, that's the way to do it. and uh, And second-chance points. So if you're not getting any of the other options or it's limited, that transition can help a ton. There has been some games this season when – the, the half-court offense has been pretty brutal, and they have found a way because of that transition. So that is probably, I would say, the biggest change from Duke early in the season, or even, again, since Brown. It hasn't. It's not like it was forever ago. I mean, that was only—I think it's been, It's. been—I'm counting every game. Since Brown, it's every ACC game besides Virginia Tech. Virginia Tech, they were awful in transition, even with that small lineup. Yeah, thirteen games. They have gone from around like three twenty, number ranked number three twenty, to now they are number sixty two and rising.
0: That's impressive. Yeah. Yeah. Um another thing I'd add to that, I think I think Wendell Moore really raises Duke's ceiling as a transition team. Um, he does he did early, especially early in the year, make some mistakes, um not finishing near the rim or having some turnovers, but just having another athletic body and then He's had some great passes in transition lately. So I think I think just overall raising our ceiling in that, that aspect of the game.
1: Yeah, or even just getting more opportunities, I think that can help as well. Uh, so we're starting, again, with Ken Palm. Defense is number six, adjusted efficiency. Number 27, effective field goal percentage. Um, there's number 47, turnover percentage. Number eight, three-point percentage. Number eight, two-point percentage. Number 22, block percentage. Number 13, steal percentage. Number seven, three-point rate. And then here's something. I mean, obviously, you got the uh, number eight, three-point percentage, and number seven, three-point rate. But uh, let's see how magical you are with your guesses again. Um, Three-point distribution, that's the percentage of total points. There are are 353 teams in the country. Where do you think Duke's opponents rank in terms of three-point distribution? The percentage of the total points that they score... On three
0: pointers? Let's say 331.
1: 349. So that is. Wow. So reversing it, that would be number four in the country. I mean, they just take it away. I mean, you play a school like Notre Dame. And I mean, we saw the same thing against Syracuse. Like, the three point rate might go up when you play those teams, and they're going to force it no matter what. But at the same time, then the percentages are going to go down. But yeah, I mean, Duke. They're, they're just fantastic in terms of their closeouts, and they'll lock you down. I mean, it's still happening, even with Cassius out. Uh, so number 201, free throw distribution. Number four, two-point distribution. When you're have the team, you not allowing the teams to score many of the percentage of their points from three, you're not allowing the team to score many of their points from the free throw line, and you're forcing the teams to score pretty much all of their points from two-point, that's an analytic stream come true. All the analytics guys—that's what they want, because that then you're like even if you give up a higher percentage, which they don't, they, at least it's two. At least it's two points. That's what—that's like what we saw versus UNC, even when they were on fire. At least it was that mid-range. It was two-point percentage, so it was it was just two points, not three. The ironic thing is that's actually kind of the same way the offense goes in terms of shooting—not many threes. Not many free throws and relying a lot on twos. But the difference is, from the defense, when they shoot the threes, they make them at a lot higher percentage. That's why the defense holding uh, the other team to such a low percentage on threes matters so much. One other thing I forgot to mention is the offensive turnover percentage. It's not great. 18.3%, which is ranked uh, number 120. And the thing that makes it a little bit worse is... uh, they separated in Kempom into steel percentage and non steel percentage. And when they turn it over, it's 10.1 steel percentage. So when teams turn Duke over, it's live ball. Live ball is always worse. The national average is 9.1%. Duke turns it over at 10.1% of the time, or 10.1% of their turnovers, which is ranked 288 in the country, again, out of 350, 53. So and their non steal percentage just eight point one percent, ranked number twenty seven. So that means when the other team turns them over or when Duke just throws it out of bounds, like it stops. So it's much worse when it's a live ball turnover, and that's what they give away more. So that's something to work on because that's obviously not a great sign. All right, synergy uh, defense uh, number ten overall, number ten overall half court, uh, number three against all half court jump shots. All right, here's an absurd stat. FSU and Notre Dame, they have combined in the last two games to shoot eight of fifty-one on half-court jumpers against Duke. That's absurd. Florida State was five of thirty-two, and Notre Dame was three of nineteen. Like, that's that's unbelievable. Like you just I mean, these guys, they might they might, I mean, when you're really extending out and locking down to that point, that's why that's when you see on some of the rotations. I mean, the rotations need to be so perfect. So guys are going to get loose every once in a while, and that's fine. You, you'll, you'll give that up because of how how much you're locking down on the perimeter, whether it be off the dribble or, or just, uh, just any type of jumper. I mean, they're number one against the dribble jumper, number one in the entire country, number four against the pick-and-roll ball handler, number 21 against the overall pick-and-roll, number 30 transition defense, And even though I I always beg them to use the press defense more, they still, I mean, in the country, well, I don't know. I mean, they're the number seven press defense among teams to use it on at least 30 possessions. Duke has used it on 250 possessions. But they are the number three ranked among teams to use it on at least 80 possessions. And 80 possessions, that's still 200 of the 353 teams. So you can see why, I mean, even among the teams that use it the most... They're ranked that high. I still want them to use it more. Like I still, because I think they're they're not even ranked that high in terms of how much they use it. Yeah, I, I'm actually going to as as I kind of do. You, do you have any opinions of that? While while I uh, while, while I look up to see exactly where they rank in terms of possessions about Duke's about Duke's press defense.
0: My only question is just when, what possessions it's counting as a press defense versus not, just because Duke does do that thing sometimes where it's that man man-to-man press that's not really a press. They just walk the ball up. Um, I'd wonder if some of those are getting counted, but yeah, I don't, I don't know. I just don't know enough about is, how that's. I would doing. say it's
1: a two-two-one. I mean, it doesn't have to okay. be like the entire thing full court. And if it's just one guy, if it's just like Trey uh, manning up, that that doesn't count. So okay.
0: Okay. Yeah yeah in that case i I would agree I'd like to I'd like to see it a little more um if nothing else just add another tool to that toolbox so that I mean we've talked so much about how this team is so versatile as, as far as its personnel goes it'd be great to become even more versatile as far as just game plan and strategy goes as well
1: all right so I'd have to reverse this they rank two ninety nine in the country with two hundred and fifty possessions of press defense the uh Three hundred and fifty first first team has pressed 680 times. That's Portland State. So um, if you flip the rankings reverse, because that's pretty much what it is, Duke uh, ranks number uh, 54 in terms of uh, how often, the, the amount of possessions they use. 54, it's a lot, but I still think, that's what I'm saying, like, there's room for it to go up. It's not like they're ranked like number 10, I'm saying no, it should be a lot more. I mean, you can like, here you go, Florida State, 553 times. Florida State, I mean, they use everyone. I mean, they, I don't know if there's any deeper team in the country in terms of just how everyone is kind of used at every time. I mean, it seems like everyone on the team plays, like, 15 minutes a game, at least for some games. But, I mean, 300 more possessions of it? I don't know. All right, to be honest, the stat I actually should have gone to a lot sooner. And the better stat to give would be percentage of the time pressing instead of actually total possessions. But uh, I guess, uh, so Duke, in terms of percentage of the time, they use the press defense that they use it 14.5% of the time. And to show the difference between them and a team like Florida State, Florida State uses it 33.7% of the time. So that's more than double. So... I think Duke has the ability to do the same thing Florida State does. They just don't. So even though Duke does press among the top tier of the most pressing teams, it's still less than half of uh, what Florida State does. So is there any stats like over the last ga- game, two games, or three games, whether it be against Notre Dame? whether it be against uh, Florida State or whether it be against UNC, are there any stats that you're interested in team-wise? It, it can get as specific as you want. I pretty much have those. This is all based on Synergy right now. Is there anything that interests you?
0: Um, no, I mean, I think you covered it pretty well. I don't have any that come to mind instantly.
1: All right, well, then let's, uh, let's move on to uh, the last thing will be just a quick wrap-up of Duke guys in the NBA. I'm not going to pretend. I'm not going to be someone who hasn't really watched a ton and then pretends I know everything about what's going on. I don't have time to watch much of it uh, until the college season ends. So what, what I did, I mean, I, I can I can kind of keep up with the storylines of what's happening. But mostly I just kind of did a quick review and a little research about all the Duke players that are in the NBA. And what I found is pretty brutal in terms of what's going on with uh, all the Duke players. Because right now, it's pretty much looking like the walking wounded. Before we get to the mountain of Duke players who are injured, let's go. I kind of organized them by tiers in terms of who I feel is having... The best, the best uh, first half of the seasons, and this isn't exact in any way. Do you know has Zion hit a, f- a three pointer since his first game?
0: Nope i'm I'm pr- pretty sure he I'm pretty sure he hasn't. I mean, I've watched that's really pretty much every fun.
1: I almost kind of predict that happened because of course he hits four four and everyone's like, "Oh, you said he couldn't shoot," and it was exactly he like the Kentucky game. And it, I think where... he did.
0: I think he did the last game hit like a, a mid range shot, but yeah, I don't think he's hit any threes since then.
1: Yeah, I'm mid-range, yeah, that's definitely not a three um, yeah, yeah,
0: exactly Yeah, but
1: either way, Zion since that, since that first game when he kind of took the world by storm he's still dominating, he's still absolutely dominating and I think it's starting to uh, he's starting to leave the minutes restrictions so he's starting to play more and more and you can see his effect on the Pelicans and I mean if he can stay healthy, it's just the future is limitless That's really all there is to say about him, and he is must-see TV. I mean, people were, like, joking around or maybe not joking, arguing that he should have – they should have put him – they should have found a way to put him in the All-Star game because he's just – he is – he's must-watch. So he is really doing well for the Pelicans. There's really nothing more to say about that, and I – I would imagine he is Lonzo Ball's favorite new toy to play with because, I mean, even that first game, I looked at it, Lonzo Ball, he had, like, five assists. Zion came in, like, two minutes later. Lonzo Ball had, like, 15 assists. So I'm sure he's like a point guard's dream. I mean, the way that he can, he's a mismatch all the time, every time. And the, the thing about him that's so just amazing for a superstar is he can still dominate without even needing the ball. Like you don't actually have to feed him the ball; he'll find a way to get it, and that's really rare for a superstar. I mean, that's some something that like only guys like Charles Barkley. I remember he used to be able to do that. But Zion, as he gets better with the ball, you can still count on him to make huge plays without the ball. And man, he's he's just fun to watch. And yeah,
0: for yeah, I was gonna so I was just gonna say as far as Lonzo goes, I mean Zion's so good at that. Just when he's posting up, just a spin out towards the basket. And Lonzo's just absolutely fantastic at throwing that pass. And you just see it almost every game that they get one point or one bucket that way.
1: Yeah, and uh, I mean, from I haven't seen a ton, but from what I have seen, I mean, just the way they use him in the short roll is, I mean, that's what I kind of – I am I was so sick even last year before they uh, kind of um, – before the NCAA moved the three-point line back. I didn't care. I mean, there's ways – to use guys in the pick and roll more than the vanilla ways that Duke does and I thought they should have been using him a ton in the short roll. I thought they should have been using like Wendell Carter in the same way in the short roll and they just never did. And all I ever hear is that like, "Oh, there's not enough space in college." Like, "Give me a break." Like, you can you can find ways to do it. So, yeah, I actually want one thing in terms of I was real quick go back to Duke in the way that I was actually really excited when Notre Dame they played a 1-3-1 one, one for a second because I was like, oh, something that Duke hasn't faced. I'm always interested to see how Duke reacts to something they haven't faced because, mm-hmm. I mean, just to see how it goes. I love that. I mean, I almost – I was watching a tiny bit of uh, Kentucky and Ole Miss, and Ole Miss ran Spain against Kentucky. And the fact that Kentucky, they, had, they also run it, so they knew how to defend it. I mean, it just helps so much. I would be very interested to see how how Duke would react to a team running Spain against them. I don't think that's occurred, and who, like I'm not going to go into anyone who hasn't uh, who doesn't know what Spain is. It's a it's a type of pick and roll, and look it up. It's it's, it's really interesting. It's been in existence for a couple of years. It's kind of exploded probably about like starting like five years ago, and there's many different ways to work off of it. The Hawks do a great job with Trey Young, but it's just something that I don't know why. Like colleges, I, I feel like they could do it more similar to what the NBA does. The NBA is always going to be ahead of the college game and stuff like that. And I mean, hey, Europe started first, so I, it's called the Spain for a reason. All right, I had to make a po- quick post-recording edit for this because I'm an idiot. UNC, North Carolina, they've actually run – forms of spain for years and uh yeah that's my bad because i mean with so many different plays it's all called different things but either way they run the same elements of it and i uh I shouldn't have uh, included them or well, i should have pointed them out the fact that they do run it i didn't actually see it in the first uh, duke unc meeting but that doesn't mean it didn't occur but unc absolutely does run a form of spain even if uh Uh, Even if they call it something else, uh, I'm I'm sure they do call it something else, but they should be included. All right, Um, so after Zion, we go to Jason Tatum. Tatum, all right, so I was worried about the acquisition of Kemba, Kemba Walker, when uh, the Celtics acquired him in the offseason. Because I was thinking to myself, this is a dude who pretty much operates on the court, not off the court, I'm not talking about personality. I'm just saying on the court— The same way as Kyrie, like very ball dominant, very alpha. I mean, when you think about Kemba, I don't know what he was like in high school, but I mean, UConn, he was everything, like everything worked around him. And then with the Hornets, they never gave him any help, like at all. So everything was around him. So I'm I'm thinking like, oh, like Jason Tatum, he's ready to take that next step towards the alpha role. He can be a superstar. But if there's another guy, I mean, I love Kyrie to death, but at the same time, I have no issue saying Kyrie really prevented growth from Jason Tatum last season. Like, it just it, that's the way it was. So I was wondering, is the same thing going to happen with Kemba? And no. And therefore, as much credit as I want to give to Tatum and it's deserved, and at the same time, credit to Kemba for being able to kind of allow that to occur to kind of back off because I remember there's a game when Tatum was out and then all of a sudden it's back to the Campbell of old. He just dominated, scored like 40 a game when when Tatum was out. But now he it's, – it's just that team, I don't know. For some reason I feel like they might be going under the radar as much as possible um, even with Bill Simmons talking about the Celtics all day, every day. But, I mean, they really I, – I, I like – I love their offense. I mean, defense, we'll see, but I love their offense. I mean, Marcus Smart's a pit bull. But let's keep it with the Duke stuff. I mean, Jason Tatum, I mean, he's really tightened up his handle a lot. I love that. Uh, I, I have made time to watch Tatum because it's worth it to make time to watch Jason Tatum. He's, I think that the two things he's improved the most from last year to this season is tightening up the handle and finishing at the rim. As strong and as fluid as he's always been. He's, a, he's struggled a bit, he avoided contact at times at the rim, and now he doesn't do that anymore. And I think the three-point uh, range, that was just kind of a thing that's been happening. So, yeah, he's improved a lot, but you could kind of see that coming. But the handle and the finishing at the rim, I mean, the dude's a superstar straight up.
0: Yeah, I'd also add just his defensive consistency this year has been far better. Um, there was obviously all the noted things about uh, just the locker room problems last year, and I, I think I think Tatum even at one point they they released an article just kind of detailing his defense pretty recently I think on ESPN, and he kind of even acknowledged that that got to him and that sometimes he'd take plays off defensively and this year he was challenged to take that next step and I think he has.
1: He actually said that. That's interesting. I mean I don't, I don't know if you're kind of aligning it with the locker room problems as the reason, but I mean Tatum, he, I think his defense was really underrated at Duke and I don't know what happened with Boston for all I know that could be, but I think a lot of people watched and for some reason thought he took plays off of Duke and he never did despite what what some said he was actually really good, he was one of the reliable defenders on Duke and, it's not, and I'm not just saying about effort but uh, Luke Kennard not quite one of the most reliable ones, on Dick. And again, it's not about effort. Luke Kennard just he struggled, but Tatum. Bottom line, Tatum wasn't the reason that Duke. That Duke team was a pretty bad team on defense, to be honest. I don't think Tatum was the problem. So uh, yeah, if he did, I mean, if he admitted it, then he admitted it. I'm, I'm not ever saying that's wrong, but it is surprising. But either way, it's glad to. I'm glad to hear that he's more of a consistent defender this year.
0: Yeah, I mean, and he always, even last year, had the ability to turn it on, but I think this year you just see him not, I mean, there there were a few times last year where you'd watch him and be like, where are you right now? And then feels like even, he's just almost assertive on defense now, forcing himself into passing lanes, making a lot of plays.
1: Okay, and you said you watch uh, the Pelicans a bunch, Uh, so what can you say about Brandon Ingram? He's taking the next step.
0: Yeah, Ingram, obviously, he just continues to improve finishing around the rim, I think just the... Strength that everybody's talking about, how much he needed to add strength coming out of college. I think he's he's done that, and then he's taken the next step shooting-wise. I mean, at, at one point, I don't know if he's still up there, but at one point he was pretty pretty close to the 50-40-90 the club, so his efficiency's just gone through the roof.
1: Now, he's he's 47% from uh, all overall field goal percentage, but he is uh, 40% exactly from three-point... Uh, range and free throws. Where is he? Eighty-six point two. So
0: yeah, so he's dropped a little bit, but yeah, still, still very efficient.
1: Yeah, and if and if Zion can get can kind of continuously uh, create space there, I mean that's a that's a heck of a combo. And I I mean, I remember I compared him a bit to uh, Tracy McGrady. Uh, I think Tracy McGrady's nickname was like the uh, the big sleep. So I nicknamed Brandon Ingram the uh, the mid afternoon nap. So I'm sure that's bound to catch on. But either way, yeah, I mean, it's tough to... The Lakers, It just seem like an odd fit for whatever reasons. And I think now he's kind of been able to take more control. And uh, I'm very interested to see how his personality affects that, if he kind of... Because I know it's probably not quite in his natural mindset to be a vocal leader of sorts. So I'm interested to see if he can take uh, more control, but... At the same time, I mean, Drew Holiday, he has no he has no problem, and that's he's a pro's pro. So they got a uh, a great leader on that team. So that's who I would say is Tier One: Zion, Tatum, and uh, Brand Ingram. And hey, two of them are on the same team. All right, so then you get uh, Tier Two. I have JJ Redick, Seth Curry, Gary Trent, and Tyus Jones. So JJ Redick just keeps on going. It's it's pretty remarkable he does even coming off the bench now. Except, I remember looking at the box score from February 2nd. It was against Houston. And I was like, what is going on? That's one of the single biggest blips I've ever seen in my life in basketball. I remember, um, what did Mark Titus name it? Uh, Trill or something. When uh, when a uh, a walk-on kind of plays a minute, doesn't accrue any stats. J.J. Redick somehow, alright, he played 14 minutes. He shot 0-3. Um, from the field, over two from three, and committed three fouls, and literally put up no other stats. There were no steals, no blocks, no rebounds, no assists, no nothing. Just 14 minutes. All he did was shoot and commit fouls in 14 minutes. And I was like, oh my god! Like the, uh, I think the time has come to uh, look at mortality for JJ Redick. And then like the next game, he's like back up to like 15 or 20 or something. And he keeps going. So that's one of the oddest things. And because I can't, I can't really pay close attention game to game. I'd be very interested if anyone actually saw that and what in the world happened. But either way, he keeps going. Seth Curry, he's back with. I mean, the team that he had the best season before this season was Dallas. Back with him, playing with Luka Doncic, and uh, yeah, as long as a team can kind of hide some of Seth's defensive weaknesses, I think. I mean, he's 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 going he's going to hit. He's going to hit shots, and that's basically he's confident. And he's playing really well for them. So, Girlfriend, uh, have you seen Curry at all?
0: Uh, I have not seen almost any of him, to be honest.
1: Well, he's playing really well. Gary Trent, All right, see, so Gary Trent. I mean, this is a dude that I was frustrated all season with the way Duke used him. I mean, he was so boxed into the specific shooter role that, I mean, it's tough when, when you're so boxed into that role. It affects everything, and that's why when uh, – in games, I would always say, like, get him involved because when he's involved, that'll at least, if nothing else, he'll he'll play harder on defense. So I, th- I think that's a, that's a big thing just to help the team overall. But even for him personally, individually, selfishly, from my behalf, I wanted to see him do well. And I just – you could tell by the way he played there was so much more he could bring in terms of his skill set. And then the draft came around, and leading up, I just – It was so weird to me, the stuff I heard, in terms of how, I mean, I was hearing all kinds of rumors, and I don't base anything just on one thing. It's only when I hear it from at least multiple, if not more. I mean, he was, like, uncoachable. He has inability to create, um, doesn't play any defense, refuses to play defense, and it was just, it was 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 really weird to me. And he actually had an interview before the draft where he talked, but he's like, you know what, I just did whatever coach asked me. I can do a lot more than what was the role given to me, but I just, I never complained. I just did it for me. Someone who's basically said that exact thing about him, he hit the nail on the head perfectly. And I love the fact that at least he spoke out about it because he wasn't bashing anyone. It's not like he was like railing against coach K. It's just, this is what happened. And that's, that's the truth. And I love the fact that he spoke that because everyone expects these guys to just be the good little soldier and just, you know what, you should be happy you went to Duke and shut up for anything you thought should happen. No, he did it respectfully, and now, man, the dude, the dude, he's balling. And the thing that he's dedicated himself to more than anything is defense, and that's, I mean, you will automatically get the respect of the locker room when that happens, and then he's just coming off the bench and putting up and putting up points, and that's, that's a team that's really exciting to watch. They've already gotten a lot of attention, because Damian Lillard has just gone insane um this scoring season,
0: a thousand points a game
1: yeah I mean that's that's insane but <laughs> Gary Trent has been quite a revelation to some who didn't expect this out of him and uh yeah he's he's been real fun
0: yeah I mean I said it during the summer league he looked he looked good he looked a lot bigger during the summer league and I think
1: wait you actually saw a, something during the summer league and made a prediction off? so oh wow that that's a bold move
0: one thing I'd but... make
1: predictions off in the summer league is the fact that it's summer.
0: <laughs> well, I also one thing I noticed was just his body being so much bigger. It felt like he he just looked a lot stronger. And seeing him come in a lot more this year, it seems like he's been able to switch over on a lot of different guys and defend very well. And just he's just so tenacious defensively. I mean, there was the game. I'm a Utah Jazz fan, so I mean, there was a game against Utah where. He, I mean, after the game, Donovan Mitchell was talking about him and saying all the stuff like, Gary Trent Jr. can't come in and think he's going to punk us. And, I mean, anytime you have an all-star talking about you after a game, you're doing something right when you're coming off the bench.
1: I I remember uh, the the, the last time I let myself actually see something in Summer League and believe anything about it was uh, Glenn Rice Jr. With my Wizards, he was the Summer League MVP. And he was awful as soon as the season started. So, yeah, that was the last time I let myself be influenced there. Uh, Tyus Jones with Ja Morant. I mean, Ja's going to be the star, but Tyus is actually having one of the best seasons of his career, at least statistically. I mean, he he's a vet. He is a vet right now, even though he's uh, still only 24 years old. I mean, when you're one and done, it's, that's still a bunch of years in the league. And with a Grizzlies team that's really young, they don't have too many... Uh, vets on that team or even to the point of Tyus who was like four years in he's he's a vital piece and he's a great backup to Ja and I think he can be I mean mentor might be a bit much because of the the lack of age difference but I was kind of I wasn't sure how the fit would be because of how different their styles were and also the closeness in age and would Tyus maybe want more minutes but it's worked out really well from from what I've from what I've seen and what I've heard and what I've read. All right, so let's go to uh, Tier B. All right, so you got R.J. Barrett. I mean, all I can say about R.J. is hopefully the Knicks don't totally ruin him. Uh, he's come, he's coming off an ankle injury and um, he's he's all healed there and he's still kind of the efficiency is uh, up and down as is the case with R.J. Until he really reworks that shot to become Hundred percent comfortable where it's repeated over and over. I think that's just the way it's going to go. But the mo- the thing I I'm just I hope the Knicks don't ruin him, So that's pretty much my analysis of that.
0: Yeah, I'd agree. I mean, they have a tendency to do that. So <laughs> yeah, let's pray. Let's pray he's uh, he's an exception.
1: All right, Cam Reddish. I will say this: those in the Cam Reddish camp, those those the big believers in Cam Reddish, man, they are big believers guys... <laughs> I like the 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 consistent minutes he got at Duke, even while inefficient. I mean, at Duke he was just still. I mean, he is a stud. Where, like even if he was inefficient, he's still like the talent you just couldn't deny. With the Hawks, I know there's been some injuries, but man, the the inefficiency is still there. But they are just they're giving him big minutes like every single game, and it's remarkable to just go down his uh, game log and look at his splits and see how. He just he just keeps getting in there and keeps getting minutes no matter how bad he does. And that's not to insult him. Hopefully, he can get it together. I mean, anyone who listened to uh, my scouting report on him before the draft knows, I don't see it. I just don't see it. But I would love – I mean, I hate to be that guy who's like, I don't see it, but I'd love to be proven wrong. Of course I – I mean, of course I'm rooting for all these dudes. That shouldn't even be something I feel like I should say. But at the same time, man, the Believer's – I mean, they 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 are they're giving him more chances than I could ever imagine for his rookie year because you would think like they would send him down to the G League so he can get experience and get get some time there, but no, he's staying up and just getting big time minutes every single game. So hopefully, it can kind of bleed into some success. Austin Rivers, Austin Rivers. Um, I mean, he kind of he has his role with the Rockets and they are trying. Very different things with the, with the way they're going all small now, and uh, I'm not sure how that's affected him. I'm very interested because I haven't really gotten a chance to see them um, since they made the big change to going all small. But, uh, yeah, he's kind of still in the same role as he was last year, so good for him. Uh, all right, here, so after that tier B of Barrett, Reddish, and Rivers, I have my fingers crossed here of Harry Giles of, uh, let's see, I have uh, Harry, Harry Giles uh, oh crap! I have these all bundled together. Harry Giles and Frank Jackson. There we go. Okay. All right. So fingers crossed here. Harry Giles and Frank Jackson. Harry Giles is someone who I mean, it always depends on his health. So he's played two straight months healthy. You never know when that knee's going to act up. The surgically repaired knees, but while he's going, all you can do is just kind of keep your fingers crossed and keeps going and root for him. The Kings are having quite a time. Um, and I'll talk more about that with Bagley. But Harry Giles, he's at least getting some consistent minutes now. So that's good. Uh, Frank Jackson. Frank's kind of, I mean, when he gets the minutes, he, he puts he puts up stats. And I think it's just there are some other guys who kind of act in the same role. But I think, I mean, I'm, I've always been a huge Frank Jackson believer. And I think if not for the Pelicans, he could find a, a role elsewhere. It's just a matter of when he's on the court – how much does he help the team, or is he just putting up empty stats? I haven't seen enough of him in the NBA to know that for sure, but at Duke, I knew he was doing plenty to help the team. So uh, hopefully he can kind of get some consistency instead of the up-and-down minutes he's gotten right now.
0: Yeah, I mean, he's he's been good. His defense is always reliable when he's in as well. I do see sometimes there's some, some dumb mistakes he makes. Sometimes it seems like he's pressing when he does get those minutes. Um, but overall, he's been good. I... I don't know. I've I've kind of said that I I almost pray he gets traded. It seems like the Pelicans are almost the team he has the least value to in the entire league with just how many good young guards they have. It's I don't know, it's just tough.
1: Yeah, I remember uh, kind of doing the same thing with JJ Redick on the on the Magic, kind of wondering why in the world he wasn't getting more consistent minutes and different situations, but at the same time, I'm a big Frank believer. All right, so uh, next here we got Quinn Cook, Jaleel Okafor, Shemi Ojale, and Emil Jefferson. Cook, he had a statistically good three-game stretch January 11th through the 15th. I don't know what's going on, but it seems like, at least according to the game log, he's fallen out of favor. I'm sure there's many who know a lot more about what might specifically be occurring. I don't think he's been injured, but I don't know. He just... It seemed like he was in the rotation at the game of the year, and now he's not. And I can't really say why, because when, when he gets more minutes, it seems like he does well. Um, maybe it's just tough for him with those kind of random minutes and when they're going to occur. Some guys struggle with that. But Quinn's always done a fantastic job of staying ready. So hopefully he can kind of get back into good graces. Uh, Jalil Okafor, that's just a tough situation. I mean, not only in terms of Jaws' style, but just in terms of the Pelicans and, I mean, just their team. Because, I mean, now you got Zion. He's, he's playing center. And they got Jackson Hayes, the super athletic center. I mean, so then you got Jalil Okafor. I mean, those are three completely different dudes. So, I mean, he's a guy that when he's in there, he'll give you really good offense. The defense is always the big question mark with him. But I think the biggest question is his style. How does it fit?
0: Yeah. And I'd add they have Melly as well. Who's been super good as a big, that can, that can stretch. And I mean, yeah, if they, if they want more offense inside, it's like they have other options and Jalil just doesn't fit kind of their play style. They want to push the pace. They want to shoot a lot of threes and neither are things he does well.
1: Okay. And to finish up, we got, uh, I'm not going to pretend to know what's going on with these guys. Uh, Shemi Oshley, I know he gets minutes occasionally with the Celtics, so it's not like out of the rotation. But, uh, yeah, and Emil Jefferson with the Magic, kind of the same thing once in a while. But uh, best of luck to both of them. Um, all right, so now we get into the injury realm. Expected to be available soon after the All-Star break. All right, Jabari Parker, he's had a shoulder issue. I'm pretty sure it's a sprain. Uh, he's supposed to make his Kings debut after the All-Star break, so that's the deal with Jabari. Luke Kennard, who is really having a breakout season in his first 30 games with the Pistons before missing the last 25 with knee tendonitis. And you don't want to mess around with knee tendonitis, but I've heard he's supposed to be back uh, pretty soon. Uh, Wendell Carter for the Bulls. He's been out since January 6th with a high ankle sprain. He is reported out of a boot now. So, uh... It almost like reminds me of like uh, Toe Gate with Kyrie when he was out of a boot. But uh, supposedly Wendell Carter's supposed to be back soon, so I think that will be nice to see him back. And hopefully he won't. He's had some like kind of f- weird freakish injuries because with the ankle sprain, I mean, if it's low, you're back pretty soon. High, that's a tough one. And what did he like break his finger last last season? I mean, that's just a weird random injury. Um, Kyrie, Kyrie, he has only played 20 games this season. Um, He'll be evaluated after the All-Star break. He has a right knee ligament sprain, which I think occurred with a collision with uh, my Wizards guy, Bradley Beal. There was obviously no um, malice meant in terms of that, no ill intent. But stuff happens. Hopefully he will be able to get back. There's not many more exciting players in the NBA than Kyrie, you could say, both on and off the court. Uh, Mason Plumlee, been sidelined for a few weeks, maybe another it's a foot issue. Here we go. I learned something. It's called a right cuboid injury. So that yep, that exists.
0: Wanna wanna hear something funny? What? Is I've I've had a left cuboid injury. What is that? It's uh, it's like the it's the bone kind of the joint under your big toe.
1: The joint under your base. So isn't that kind of like um, isn't that the Kyrie thing that that. Uh,
0: is that I, I i guess i don't remember enough about the like Kyrie foot injury
1: might be i don't know but either way that sucks um all right injuries not sure the timetable justice winslow I, nobody knows so <laughs> i don't i don't know what's going on with him he was traded from the heat to the grizzlies and it's really cool i mean so now you got uh they named the 2014 recruiting class with grayson um big jaw tyus jones and um and Justice Winslow, they named them the Four Quarters. So now you got three quarters on one team, and hey, Jaws, uh, he's an unrestricted free agent after this season. So who knows what can happen there? But Justice Winslow, I don't know. Like he ha- he has some sort of back issue, and really, no, like I don't know what's going on with that. He was playing pretty well, um, making some really good contributions at point guard for the Heat. He's, he's kind of just doing whatever it takes to uh, help them win. But now, I don't know. I mean that's really yeah when he
0: when he played without Butler he was fantastic I mean obviously when he comes in he's he's gonna own the ball a little more so that took a little away from him but without him he was he was doing he was doing pretty awesome as a point guard.
1: All right, so then we get to the injuries not looking good. Marvin Bagley, I think there's been reported. I believe this is Sam Amick of uh, Kings Beat reporter that that everyone's getting frustrated because of the lack of knowledge about anything uh, from the team or Bagley. And I mean, there's even been some, uh, some swirlings that he may be out for the rest of the season with the foot issue. So I don't know. Uh, I, I don't know what's going on with there. I mean, it's just really frustrating that he hasn't gotten a chance to develop. I mean, that's, I just want him to at least have the opportunity, whether he succeeds or struggles. At least it would be nice to see him play. I mean, that's the bottom line. The most frustrating thing I can imagine for an athlete at that level is just never getting the chance to actually show what you can do, and have, and then hearing all the noise going on around you about how frustrated they are because you. I mean, you can't you can't do anything. You can't prove yourself if you can't get on the court. Um, and then, an odd thing: Mike Shishovsky might have actually, or purposefully. Who knows? Revealed that Grayson Allen's out for the rest of the season. Because I think he was asked about that. um, And the Grizzlies... I mean, this was a couple days ago when when I wrote this out. So maybe more information has come out. Maybe I'm late with it. The Grizzlies haven't responded to Kay saying that. But, uh, yeah, Grayson's had a hip injury. And he hasn't uh, played, I think, since the new year. So, I don't know. But, not looking good. Lastly... Uh, Rodney Hood unfortunately uh, tore or ruptured his Achilles, and I'm always I'm always hoping to see that first guy who can prove that you can be as good or better than athletically, you can perform to that level or better than before you tore or hurt or ruptured your Achilles. I'm still waiting for that first player in any sport because. The guys who are always used as examples, I mean, they had to, like, totally change up their game. It was just never quite the same. Usually they kind of hurt something else because they're overcompensating or they tear their Achilles again. I mean, there's, there's the random ones. There's, like, Terrell Suggs. I mean, he, he ended up, I think he tore, like, both. But he still had a career. He still, he still was able to continue. I think Richard Sherman in football, he's come back. He might be the best example so far. Of of someone who at least resembles the player they were because I mean Dominic Wilkins back in the day Dominic Wilkins I mean he totally changed his game because if you look at the the stats you can say oh he still put up great stats but his game was never like it was before um, last is have you have you seen what team does Wesley Matthews play for
0: you know uh yeah I don't
1: know okay well I, I know he had um. He, he, he tore, and I think he was actually playing some pretty good defense, at least what somebody told me um, this season, but who knows. Um, but I'm, I'm just – I would really love to see someone who can come back really, really strong, and hopefully Rodney Hood uh, – Wesley Matthews plays for the Bucs. Uh, so hopefully okay. Rodney Hood is going to be that guy or amongst the guys, and I think many are looking at Kevin Durant as someone who we're all just assuming he's going to come back as Kevin Durant. I don't know about that. I hope he does. But he would be someone to really break the mold if he can absolutely do that. All right. That's so that's basically did I I didn't forget anyone. I'm just doing players. I'm not doing any coaches or anything like that. These are just players. I think I covered everyone, right?
0: Yeah, I think so. Not I can't think of any that you didn't, so all right. It's good to say there's a lot of them, though. So,
1: Yeah, I mean, it's good to say there's a lot of them, but the, there is way too many that are injured, and that is really unfortunate. But when you have that many, at least uh, you got you got some backups. Um, yep. Looking at the, the All-Star lineup, um, Duke has two players in there with Tatum and Ingram. Um, the only college team to have more is Kentucky. They have uh, Anthony Davis, Devin Booker, and Bam Adebayo. If you want to include the ACC with Tatum and Ingram, the ACC, I think they have the most of any conference with Chris Paul and Donovan Mitchell. Uh, the, only, the only thing I see that kind of intrigued me um, about uh, the guys, and besides the overseas guys, the guys who went to college, where they went, there is a massive uh, lean towards the West Coast in terms of the, uh, most of the players are from the West Coast besides those guys I mentioned from the ACC. And I think – and then there's Kemba and then there is – there's Kyle Lowry. I think literally every single other one went to a a Midwest or kind of towards the West Coast, which I find very interesting.
0: That is interesting. Yeah, wouldn't I guess?
1: All right. Email me if you're interested in ever uh, kind of hanging out with me on the pod, being a co-host – being uh, what I would hope eventually I can get someone for, uh, someone who can work the play-by-play and kind of set me up to do analysis. So I'm not doing everything, but either way, just someone that someone to have fun just talking to Duke and uh, whatever else is on your mind. So email Duke Basketball Corner um, if you are interested at all in any sort of role, hopefully long-term. Um, Andrew, thank you so much for joining me and everyone else. Please Rate, review, that is the way to have others hear what what is going on with this podcast. It is the best Duke content you will find. There's nobody else. Everyone's going to be making up random narratives about how Zion lifted Duke to victory instead of actually saying what really happened during games. You want better than that, or I would hope you do. Duke deserves the best coverage. I am here doing everything possible to give it to you. So Duke will now travel to uh, NC State and let's see here. What do they have after NC State? Is it Virginia? Ooh, two in a row like that. Virginia Tech. So they got NC, NC State okay. on Wednesday, Virginia Tech on Saturday. Virginia Tech has really fallen off since the last time they played. But, hey, they still they pose a, an interesting sort of lineup. And NC State, as I said before, they have talent and playing at their place. It's almost going to be the sort of – not total UNC desperation, but NC State's going to come out doing everything possible to have every opportunity to make the NCAA tournament. So then, we'll, so for those, I'll have a lot more to talk about. Maybe I'll do one if, uh, if I can after each. Maybe I'll do uh, it after both games. I'd love to keep on doing it after each, but I thought this was a good time to kind of do an extended episode focusing on a little bit more than just the Notre Dame game. For Andrew Clark, I'm Adam Comer. Thank you so much for listening to the Duke Basketball Corner Podcast. I'll be talking to you soon.